Amen. You can be seated. And I'm so glad to see your faces today. Uh, my name is Nathan. I get to be one of the pastors here. And I'm grateful to be uh, preaching from God's Word today. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 46. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. And as you're turning to Isaiah uh, 46, I just want to welcome you that are guests in the room specifically. And I want you to know that we've prayed for you. If you are a guest here and it's your first time, um, listen, Bellwether is a friendly group of people. And so if they haven't greeted you yet, just assume that those people are guests that haven't greeted you. They're just new like you. So you just reach out to them. Also, you can fill out a card in the seat back in front of you and drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out, and we will contact you in a respectful way. We're grateful that you join us. Um, we want to make much of King Jesus and of our Creator God, and so our prayer today is that you would be invited to join us as we do that. We want to exalt who He is and how He works and what he's accomplished in the world on behalf of everyone who believes. And so for us today, this is just a regular pattern of celebration, and we want to invite you to join us in that. Now, maybe you're wondering why I would turn to Isaiah. We just finished Galatians, and typically we go through whole books of the Bible here. That's kind of our regular pattern. But during this season of Advent, we have a few weeks where we get to remember Christ's arrival, that he came and dwelt among us, that he took on flesh. And so one of the, the uh, great books in God's Word that points to that anticipation, the expected arrival of Jesus, is Isaiah. And so in just a moment, we're going to read from that, and that's why we're there today. The other thing I want to ask you before we begin is this. What is your go-to while you're waiting? Now, there's a lot of waiting going on during the season of Advent or during the season of Christmas. The people that are kids are probably waiting for their Christmas presents. They're wondering what's going to be under the tree on Christmas morning. Uh, all the moms are waiting for the, the expected arrival from Amazon. Uh, all the dads are wondering what we're going to eat. Um, there's all of these ways in which we are waiting right now in anticipation for what is to come in the next few weeks. And in our waiting, we get to remember how the world anticipated Christ's first arrival. And the question that I want to ask that I think this passage will respond to is what do we do while we wait? What's the most opportunities that we have for entertainment? Uh, this, we live in a day and age where there's so many things right in the portal of our phone. We can get to the entire world. No longer do we have to wait in line and look at the tabloids of the People magazine. We can just open up our phone and everything in the, the entire world is staring back at us potentially. And so in all of this world of distractions from cat videos to fails to designers, etc., all of these potential things are eager to grab our attention as a window of escape so that we can forget about the tension that we're waiting in. So that we can just be distracted for a moment. I was just having a conversation uh, right before church that it's like we've been binging on this show because it's just providing this great escape from the news, from all the political tension of the moment. And there's all of these things that are trying to captivate our attention so that we can be distracted from the reality that we are not yet in what we long for, a new heavens, a new earth, where things are not yet as they should be. You can turn on the, the news this week, and there's devastating tornadoes, there's more shootings, all of the, the world just seems wrong, 
And as we look at the things that are broken, that long to be made right, there's an opportunity for two things. First, there's an opportunity to just be distracted, which is what most of us would choose. It's the easiest way out. And in this space where the tension is between what the world is and what it could be, what it is and what it should be, God invites us to remember him. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Now, Isaiah is written to a group of people that are experiencing God's consequences for their sins, okay? They're they're suffering. They've been in captivity or they're awaiting captivity. And this particular portion of the book is written to them saying, hey, listen, you're not going to suffer forever. The consequences of your sin are not going to last forever. There's going to be a day when I'm going to come and save you. And so as we remember in Advent, that, that means arrival. Um, these people were anticipating a day when they'd be delivered, just like us. Anticipating. And it was an informed delivery. They weren't surprised by what showed up at their door when Jesus came. There was a group of people who were longing for his arrival. And as he came in the first place, we, they were remembering all of the promises that God had made. First from the garden, that the serpent's head would one day be crushed underneath our feet. That the promise that Abraham Abraham would not just be a father of a nation, but he'd be the father of many nations. And that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And yet there were so many things that had been promised that had not yet arrived through Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, the book of Isaiah is saying, here's what you need to do while you wait. How should we wait? And he's basically saying in this passage, remember your God while you're waiting on his deliverance. Remember him in the groaning of your heart as you wait. Now, I know that during the season of Christmas, a lot of people have a more difficult time, that it's not happy for you. You remember who's missing at the dining room table. And I believe that this passage holds great encouragement for us today. Whether we're suffering or longing, whether we're groaning or just excited about the things to come, that we would remember this and stand firm in it. So let's pray that as we read this passage of Scripture, starting in verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I've made, and I will bear I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he who makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, bring near. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. And for those of us who feel the tension even now between the way things are and the way that we long for them to be. In the midst of all of our disappointment and grief and sadness and sorrow, I pray that you'd remind us how you broke in to this world while we anticipate you again, Father, I pray that you'd remind us how to remember you in the midst of waiting. And I pray this for the sake of your great name, Jesus. Amen. There's a few things that we're going to see in this passage that God calls us to remember. And I want to first point out in verses 8 and 9 what he's saying in summary. He's saying, remember this, stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There's a few things he's going to call us to remember in this passage. First, that he's the creator and sustainer of all things, that he's unequaled. He's incomparable to any other thing. He's not like any idol that we can make. And then ultimately to remember that he stands supreme, that he's not only supreme over all things, he gets to execute his supremacy in his sovereignty and might and in ultimately in his salvation. And so we're going to first remember that God is creator and sustainer. Look at verse 3. He starts with this audience, the house of Jacob, all the remnant, those who are left waiting, wondering where God is and when he's going to show up. First, he's saying, look, I know who you are. I see you. There's this remnant that still exists who are clinging to the hope of God's righteousness, that he's going to show up for them, that he's going to bring justice for them, that he's going to be fair and good and that he's not far off. So there's a group of people who are holding on to that hope. And he's reminding them first that he's their creator. He, get, he takes this group of people and he says, look, before you were aware of yourself, while you were still in the womb, while you hadn't been born yet, I was there. I spoke you into existence. He carried them from the womb. It implies this knowledge and understanding of who they are. Listen, there's a way that every mother in this room knows their children better than the children know themselves. For every 14-year-old wondering who they are and every 21-year-old looking for their identity, Look to your mom because she's watched you from the moment that you were born. And God is saying in the same way, I've known you before you even knew yourself. I know your story from the beginning. And it's not just there that he knows them. Look at verse four. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I've made and I will bear. I'll carry and will save. Look, not only did he make you and spoke you into existence from the moment before you were born, he's going to carry you no matter your age from infancy all the way till every hair on your head is gray or hidden by dye. All of those things. He's going to see every day in between. And he's going to hold you together by the word of his power. He's also sustainer. Now, before I move on to that, I just want you to pause for a moment and remember that before you ever walked, before you ever breathed your first breath, before you spoke a word, God saw you and every one of your days were written in his book. 
He saw the beginning from the end, and he knows you better than you can possibly know yourself. Now, why would he remind them of this? Because sometimes whenever we're in the tension of suffering, loss, and grief, we can begin to wonder, where is God? Is he somehow like forgetting who I am? Does he see where I'm at today? So he brings this as a comfort for them. Remember that I've borne you. And not only did he have them from before they were born, he was, he's a sustainer. He carries them. He doesn't require that you carry him. He's not like other things, which we're going to see in a moment. He's supreme to all these things. For those that see the things of God as a burden on your shoulders, maybe you feel like, oh, I guess God wants me to come to church today. Here's what I want you to know today. That God is not a burden. He bears your burdens. He's not something that you bear up underneath. He's bearing you right now. You're being held together by the word of his power. And he's declaring over everyone who's clinging to him as their only hope that not only did he create you, but he's carrying you today. He holds you together. And then ultimately, he'll save you. Look, he doesn't take on employees in his kingdom. He lets people be involved in what he's doing. He's saying, yeah, you can get involved in what I'm doing, but he doesn't need you to carry him. The invitation stands that if you want to be part of his work, you can join him in it, but he doesn't need you to carry it out. He's saying, you can express my kingdom in this world by participating with me. And not only that, I will save you. Remember, and stand firm in this, that before you were born, he created you. Psalm 139 says this, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So what does that mean? It means that before you were born and in this day, the origin of your life didn't come from you. Where you are today, now there may be many decisions that you've made to get you to this point in your life, but ultimately God saw every single one of them and he was writing your story before you were even aware of him. So he's your ultimate origin. Now, it's tempting to see your life as a list of decisions that you've made, and that is partly true because you are where you are because of those decisions, but none of those things were shocking to God. That's what it means. There's not a single mistake that you've made where God covered his mouth and said, oh no, what are we going to do? Not a single one. There's not a number of of the things that you've done. Listen, God has great possibilities that he holds for your life because of his foreknowledge of you before you existed. So remember that. Remember not only that he created you, but he carries you, that he doesn't need you and that you're not alone, that whatever you're facing, you're not solo. God saw your unformed substance before you breathed and he bears you up. And ultimately, this means that he alone will save you. <laughs> So, look, when the people heard these words, they were anticipating that he would show up and save them by military might and that he would show up in some powerful way. They anticipated ways that God's, God would work. And the same way we anticipate ways that God wants to work in our lives, it might be different from the ways that he's working. The ultimate promise remains that he himself is alone our Savior. Now, this is 
one of our core values here as a church is that we're rescued by God. So as we see one another, as we gather here every week, we try to rehearse that to one another, that we come into this space as those who've been rescued. And hopefully that makes us a grateful people. It makes us a humble people. It makes us see that God's the center of the story of what he's doing in the world. We're not the middle of all of it. He's the one. He stands alone. And so we look to him as creator, savior, sustainer, and only he can deliver us. Now, there's this risk, and the reason that he would put himself in this place and say, you need to remember this, is because there's a way in which we look for all kinds of saviors. You know this? Like, we look for things that are going to deliver us from the present moment. And I'm not just talking about our phone. I'm talking about any, not just our distractions, We're looking to things that will deliver us from the tension that we feel that the world is not right. Do you feel the world is broken? Yes, we do. And our response to that matters. And so God is saying, look, look to me. I'm not like anything else that you would have to prop up or carry or create. Look at verse five. He says this, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? In other words, there is no comparison. And then he's going to go into what it looks like to have idols. So he's saying in the second part, God is incomparable. He's supreme. He stands above all others. Now, maybe we come into this space already knowing that there's nothing that's going to satisfy our souls except for God himself. And we don't think of ourselves as idolaters. And, and it really is hard because none of us probably have carved out something and set it up in our, own, our home and feed it every day, right? Like none of us have made some practice of carving out an idol and setting it up. Maybe you've seen that in someone's home. Maybe you've seen it in a restaurant that you walked in, but God is not like those things. He will not be served. But we have other kinds of idols. John Calvin says that the, the heart from birth is kind of a manufacturer of idols. Maybe you've heard it said, he, may, he said that we're like a factory for idols. We're pumping them out all day long. Anything that potentially could take our affections and our uh, value and love. Uh, Tim Keller describes an idol like this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That puts it in a different light, right? So as God says, I'm supreme, there's none like me. To whom will you compare me to? I would invite us to look at our lives and say, is there anything that maybe we were trying to fit into our lives to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us, to make us feel successful and secure, to feel significant, to feel like we've already dealt with our guilt, shame, and fears, and and say, look, I've got this. And so he puts himself in comparison to all the potential idols. And I want you to look at how he describes them. The first thing he says is, look, they got to go get their silver and their gold. They dig deep in their purse. In other words, other things will cost you. It's costly to look to other things to save you. For us to say there's no one like our God, we come to him saying, look, everything else, not only are empty promises, but they cost us more than they promise. They are costly and they're created. Look, they have to hire a goldsmith 
in order to make them into a God. And then they fall down and worship them. And rather than being created by God, they're creating things with human hands. Look at the, com- uh, the contrast between how he created them and now he's describing created things, creating things so that they could bow down to them and give worship to them. And then he says, they care, they're carried by you. You have to pick them up and put them on your shoulders. Not, they're not carrying you. You have to pick them up and tote them around because they're inanimate objects. God is incomparable because he doesn't need you to carry him. So many of the things that we serve need us in a way that's absolutely dependent on our presence to them. Lots of things that we could give our time to that would just collapse if we stop attending to them. Idols, things that we've set in God's place. And he stands here in our midst appealing to us to remember that he's not like any of those things. It doesn't answer when it's cried to. It doesn't save when it's asked to save. So, in summary, all the false idols of the world are going to promise you something but cost you more. It's almost like you're at the bottom of the pyramid scheme, right? My wife and I recently watched this documentary on a pyramid scheme, and we're just sucked in, looking at everyone like, it's so sad. It's terrible. We can't look away. And in the same way... Idols give us those kinds of promises. It points to some type of success that maybe a few people have had. (laughs) And it promises it to everyone who's going to be dependent on them for the other success. It promises you a small cost. It promises to lift you up, but in the end, you do all the heavy lifting. It promises you things that it will do for you and provide for you. And in the end, it doesn't do anything for you and it leaves you brokenhearted. No. Sometimes we, we live in a world that leaves us with questions that feel completely unanswered. Like, how in the world did this happen to me? I did this, I did this, and it didn't work out for me. Because the world and its idols are always promising a formula where if you put in this and this, you're going to get success, you're going to get joy, you're going to get blessing. And God's not like that. He's not a dispenser of goods, like where you just trade him some good works and he gives you like the blessed life. He's not going to be a slave to you. He invites you to come and surrender to his supremacy. There's no comparison. God's unequaled in power and presence and person and in mercy. And he exists not as a creation of our mind, but as our creator. And he has no needs. He's dynamic. He's not dependent on us to move him around. And he's inviting us to pray to him and to watch him move. So before I move on, a couple of applications. What does this mean? Right now, even in this moment, our appetites are calling to us. Maybe your appetite for lunch is calling to you already. You're thinking, what's going to be on the plate? There's tons of things calling for your attention and your time. In the same book, Tim Keller says this, a true God of your heart is whatever your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. Maybe it's just the soft blue glow that lights up your face in the mirror of things that you love through your phone. I think it's probably the most distracted time 
of humanity because of how accessible some release from the tension that we live in lives in our pockets, in our hands. There's something calling to us and and God is saying in this invitation to remember while we suffer, while we wait to remember who he is, to remember that he's in charge of everything. Even when it feels very, very uncomfortable. And the people that are receiving this initially, they were uncomfortable. They were not okay with how long their suffering was lasting. And God wrote this to them to remind them, look, I'm still in charge. Your deliverance is coming. And you can come to me while you wait. Come now. Don't wait until you're delivered to say, God be praised. Come right now. Come freely to me. I'm not going to charge you something. You don't have to dig deep in your purse in order to come to me and drink freely. Isaiah 55, 1 says it this way. Come everyone who thirsts. Look, all the requirement is this, that you thirst for him. That you feel your need for him. Come to the waters, he who has no money. Come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. What Isaiah, what's he saying that you can come and enjoy? He's not saying this, that you're going to get food to eat and sustenance. He's saying, come and dine with God himself. He's, the, what he's, he's offering himself to people who will just come to him with their need. That's what he requires of you, that you feel your need of him. You feel your thirst for him, and you don't try to cram in something else other than him. That's what he requires of you. There's nothing that he needs from you. See, he's not appealing to you to say, hey, I really need you to show up to church today, okay? The the service just isn't going to be the same without you. While that's true, it's not because he needs you to bear under the load of what he's accomplishing. In fact, in Acts, it says that he doesn't need anything. He made the world and everything in it. Look at this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Doesn't it seem laughable? Since he himself gives all to mankind life and breath and everything. So we come to him with our needs. He's the only way in which you're living, breathing, having sustenance. He's the the one who stands above all the rest. And so how do you trade all the things that potentially appeal to you just to release the uncomfortable tension that we feel when we turn on the news or when we look at our kids or when we look at the world or we look at our neighborhood and say, this thing is going crazy. What do you do? Well, the only way that we can exchange these things is to see how God has made us his treasure through the cross. And in that, he makes himself our treasure. That's the great exchange of God's love for us. That he demonstrates his love for us. We're overwhelmed and surprised and in awe of the reality that he would demonstrate such a love for us to make us those that are lost besides him, his treasure on the cross, and then that makes us treasure him. This is how Tim Keller says it. When you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. It's the great exchange. He lavishes us with his affections. 
and he gives us that affection for him that's described in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field and overjoyed with this treasure. He goes and sells everything that he has in order to obtain the field. Look, he didn't think he was losing anything when he gave up everything. He knew that there was something more valuable than everything that all of the temporary things had to offer him. He gave them up freely. So we see and remember today that God is creator and sustainer, that he stands above all others. He's incomparable and supreme. And the last part of this passage is declaring that not only is he supreme, he gets to act as supreme. In other words, he's sovereign and he's savior. Remember this. He goes on to say, he, he remembered this, that he declares the end from the beginning. The story isn't over until God says it's over, okay? So some of you are feeling the tension right now in your home, in your life, with the prayers that have gone unanswered. And I want you to know that God will ultimately speak the final word over your life, over your circumstance. He holds all of it together. His counsel shall stand. He never fails to accomplish his purpose. In verse 11, it says that the ways that they're suffering under the oppression, that they would see God's righteousness come. The ways that they were suffering as a consequence over their sin, he's saying, hey, I'm still savior over you. Spurgeon said it this way, that there is not one speck of dust that's outside of God's command. There's not one place in all of creation. There's not one inch that isn't his, that he's not holding together. In Hebrews chapter one, verse three says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, the reason that you're not falling apart today is because God declares that and he's holding you right now. There's not one cell in your body that God isn't holding together. He holds all of these things and by his power, he holds us today. And not only by his power does he hold us and accomplish his purposes, but he declares this over all who believe. I will bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. So in all the ways that you feel that the world is broken, he's reminding you today of this, that his righteousness is not far off. Now, the group of people that were anticipating Christ's arrival, they're thinking, yeah, you're going to bring righteousness because they were suffering oppression. So as they suffered, they thought God is fair. He's not going to let this stand forever. He's going to come in, take out the oppressors. I'm sure they believed this over the Babylonians, over the Assyrians, eventually over the Romans. And in all of these places where they were being oppressed as God's people, they would have clung to this and said, make it right, God, because you're righteous. What they didn't know was that the, the ultimate demonstration of God's righteousness was on the cross. That, that what they needed more than anything was a demonstration of God's mercy. Because God's righteousness declares that not just the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all the people who've wronged you need to be punished. It ultimately means that all of us stand under this reality that we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so when it says in God's word to remember that God's righteousness is near, we cling to it, not just with the triumph of the resurrection, but we cling to it with fear and trembling, knowing that under God's righteousness, we need a savior. We need someone to stand in our place for us. 
They anticipated that all the wrongs would be made right. They didn't know that the wrongs they had committed against God would be made right too. All of the wrongs would be made right. Remember the things of old, the deliverance that they longed for, and remember those today in God's sovereignty, that he, he gets to exercise his power. He's not just supreme over all other things as creator, but he gets to exercise that. So I want us to remember that today, that there's nothing outside of his command. A.W. Pink says it this way, the sovereignty of God can be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. He's not just supreme, he gets to exercise that. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he's the most high Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, as he pleases. He gets to do as he wishes. And now, for those of you that are like, wait a minute, wait, does this create some kind of problem? Does this like mean that we shouldn't pray? No, it doesn't. He's inviting to us to participate in his will being accomplished through prayer, through his work. It doesn't mean that you're not responsible for your sins. Uh, Spurgeon said that, that with this tension between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, if you look at God's word, people might struggle to reconcile these two things. But he would say, I have no need to reconcile friends. These things have been friends all along. If the Bible doesn't struggle to reconcile these things, we, shouldn't, we should re receive this with humility and say, this is a mystery. God gets to do as he pleases, and it pleases him to show us mercy. And that is really, really good news. It pleases him to execute his justice in a way where all the wrath that all who believed would deserve falls on Jesus Christ. So how do we receive this? How do we receive this word today? That ultimately his salvation will be accomplished. We believe that God's not absent right now. He's not far from our suffering. For those of you who feel as if you've suffered unfairly, he knows better than you do all the ways that you've suffered. He understands those things more than you possibly could. All the longings of your heart, he gets it because he made you before you were even born. And he sees you from the day that you first existed to the day that your hair is gray. And all the days in between, he's present and real and he's not out of control. He still sees you and he's near to you. He's still sustaining you. He's sovereign over all things and he's supreme. Now in this passage, we get to see that his salvation, his deliverance will be in his time. Okay? The things that you wish were made right sometimes feel like a long way off. They feel like they are just always just over the horizon. Who's with me? Whew. Like what God seems to want to accomplish seems like right out of the distance. And in this time, just as in the time when this was written, God's salvation coming through a Messiah was something that people looked forward to and they knew it to be true because of his deliverance in the past. And so for us today, we not only know that he comes in his time and in his way, he's promised that he'll come again. And today we look backwards and we look forwards. We live in this tension between what God has already accomplished and what he has not yet accomplished. So what do we do while we wait? Pulled between what he's done and what he's going to do. 
And I just want to ask this simple question for application. What has your attention while you wait? What's pleading to you to break out of the moment? So many ways. I have trouble being present in the moment. Anybody had a conversation with you knows this. My mind is going a hundred different ways. And I want to ask you first, why do you want out of the moment? Because that is a common thread for all of us. It's hard for us to be present in the moment because this life isn't yet what we hoped. And if it is, be very cautious. Beware of yourself. If you become more attached to this temporary life than the one to come, be cautious, be aware, be concerned. Because those of us who are being redeemed feel the tension. We feel pulled between the temporary reality of where we live and the promise of what God is delivering us to. And so how do we break out of that moment? What allures you to bring you from the present into something else? To break out of the silence and solitude of the Lord and, and to feel that tension between what's already happened and what's not yet come. There's so many ways in which we as Christians live in this space. Look, you already have been redeemed by the work of Christ, and yet we haven't seen him face to face. We're already justified by his work, and one day we'll be reconciled completely to God, fully realizing all that he's accomplished. We've already been sanctified by God's work, and yet there's a way in which Christ is constantly transforming us. So we live in this space where we're not yet, not yet finished works, and in the meantime, in the tension, rather than avoiding the tension, live with it in patience and remember our God. The whole book of Isaiah is just basically saying, remember who God is. Remember him. He's sovereign over everything. Don't forget him while you're waiting. He has no needs, and yet he invites you to come with all of your needs and to come to him, the only one who can satisfy you. So in this tension, while we know that he's accomplished things and we wait, what is it that's clinging to your attention while you wait? Because God's invitation today is to remember him. While we groan, while we ache, while we long in angst for the second coming of Christ, what's holding on to us? And I want to read this from Romans chapter 8. It's just a reminder that what we hope for has not yet come. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, all the way up to this point, all of creation has ached and longed for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And even though he's come, we still long for him. We long for the further realization. And then it goes on to say, for in this hope we were saved. Past tense. But, how's that work? Now hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
This week, one of my kids asked me, so what happened to all those people that were around before Jesus came? Did they get to be saved too? What happened to them? What about Abraham and David and all those guys? And I explained to my child that those people were eagerly longing for the Messiah's coming and they believed that he would come, that God would fulfill his promises. And because of that, their faith is what reconciled them to God. It made them righteous before him. And in the same way, for those of us who believe today, we believe in something past tense that Christ has accomplished. And yet there's a way in which we don't fully experience all that Christ has accomplished. So we're holding on to both realities And the way that we do that with patience is to not forget God. Not only is this the most distracted generation ever, this is the season of distractions. You could miss the reality that we're celebrating God incarnate, that he took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He did what we could not do for ourselves. And so the invitation, just as it was back then, is to remember him. To remember that he saw every one of your days. And right now he sees the end from the beginning. And he'll hold you together and carry you up from the day that you started to the day that it's finished. And some of us are longing, Lord, come, Jesus, come. Help it to be over. (laughs) And in the meanwhile, I just want to urge you to be patient. To live in the uncomfortable tension that all the things that God has accomplished for you have not yet all been realized in your life. And while you wait, remember. While you wait, remember. One of the most practical ways you could do this this season, uh, and I I read this somewhere else. This guy named Justin Early has a guide for Advent, and he has four different ways to kind of celebrate Advent, and I thought this is a really practical way for us. Every time you're waiting in line or at a red light, just don't pick up your phone. Just feel the tension of waiting. Feel the nearness of God's righteousness to you. Feel the, feel the nearness of his, he's acquainted with your story right now. He knows all of the days. Just remember him in those spaces. That would be a practical way for us to practice this passage today. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember and not to forget all the ways that you've provided for us and all the ways that we long for you to make things new. And for those that are suffering in this room and feel like you've forgotten where they live, I pray that you'd show them that you're going to break through the clouds once again, victoriously over sin and death once again, and you're going to make all things new. And we long for that day. Lord, we are not trying to set up some kingdom here on earth. We long for your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And in all the ways that those things are just anticipated, I pray that you'd give us an imagination and a hope for what you intend to accomplish for us in the future. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.